All right. Good morning, everyone. Uh, turn with me to actually, yeah, I guess you could turn there. Genesis chapter 38. We're continuing on in our scripture reading. <coughs> and uh, last Friday we read uh, Genesis chapter 37. <coughs> and today we're on Genesis chapter 38. And um, we're not going to read the whole thing. I'm just going to give you a little bit of uh, context. In Genesis chapter 37, uh, we get into the introduction of Joseph and his family. Uh, And I was sharing with you guys that to take encouragement because a lot of the context of the people God uses, they're coming from very broken families. And despite their broken families, God, by His grace, comes and encounters individuals calls them out, brings them out, blesses them, and then as a result, they become a blessing to their family. Uh, And then you get to chapter 38, and I got to tell you, there's only a handful of scriptures or passages uh, where I would just not rather not read it, and rather not even get into it, and rather not even try to explain the multiple views and commentaries. Um, I would say chapter 38 is one of them. Uh, you'll, you'll, you'll read scriptures, and you'll, uh, particularly in the Old Testament, and you'll find encounters or descriptions of, of certain events, and, and you just, it just kind of, you wonder, you know, it's, it's a, a unethical, it's, it's, it's a sinful, it's, um, it, but yet these are people who are, who are following, uh, uh, you know, or in, in the lineage of, of God's people. And so there are a handful of places, this being one of them, where, where I'd much rather just skip and move on. Um, but, I, but remember last, I think it was Thursday or Friday, I said, um, of a friend of mine who does Bible studies with his young children, and he doesn't use any children's materials. He simply takes any passage and says, can you see Jesus or, or the nature or the heart uh, or, or the person of Jesus? And so this is one of those chapters I was reading. I was like, I don't know where Jesus is in this chapter. I don't know how this fits into everything. Um, And basically, uh, one of the brothers of uh, the sons of Jacob, uh, older brother of Joseph, um, uh, breaks off from the family, marries someone who's not an Israelite, uh, has sons, and then finds uh, 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 wives for his sons. So you guys are, maybe some of you who, Sunday school teachers might be familiar. Uh, I mean, you, not that you've taught this in Sunday school. Um, <laughs> but where Judah uh, basically has sexual relations with his sons, uh, uh, with his daughter-in-law, basically, uh, who, who dresses up as a, as a, a prostitute because uh, her husband had died. The brother wasn't fulfilling his, his uh, uh, duty to provide children. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's chapter 38. Um, but you'll come upon a handful of passages and you'll read and, and, and it'll, it'll seem contradictory, it'll seem conflicting. And, and you, just, you just scratch your head and you wonder why it's in the scriptures. And uh, oftentimes you want to skip these types of passages. Um, I think this is a great opportunity. And, and I'll just read one part here. I'll just read from 27 to 30. Uh, when the time came for her to give birth, There were twin boys in her womb. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand. So the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, 
This one came out first, but when he drew back his hand, his brother came out, and she said, So this is how you have broken out. And he was named Perez. Then his brother, who had the uh, scarlet thread on his wrist, came out, and he was named Zara. Okay, so this is how the whole ordeal... You guys can read it on your own time. I don't even want to like, read it out loud, some of the things that are going on here. Uh, but you can read it for yourself. Um, one of the things that this reminds us of, a couple principles here. One, uh, just as a context, you know, just a reminder for us to recognize the Bible's complexity. Right? The Bible's complexity. It's a collection of 66 books written by dozens of authors over a span of thousands of years from different cultures and spanning over many different genres. So if you just think about that for a moment, the complexity of the scriptures, it wasn't written by one person at one time. God used individuals uh, over 66 books written by dozens of authors, thousands of years apart, different cultures, different contexts, uh, different genres. And so it's incredible uh, uh, how, how diverse and how complex the scriptures are. But at the same time that God can convey his central message through the scriptures, through the generations, through all these different peoples. Uh, I often encourage people to see the scriptures or see God's message as a mosaic, right? And, and you can get really lost into the details and into one particular context. And, uh, uh, um, and I think personally, I think that's why there's so many denominations. People get really detailed and, and to the fine line they cut and this division between uh, uh, particular interpretations of the scriptures. Um, especially when you look at a book like Revelations, you, you have to approach it in, in the sense of a mosaic. A lot of pictures, right, that when you take a step back, you see the whole picture or the person, the image of Christ through these texts, through these scriptures, through these examples. But sometimes if you get too close, you, you, you lose sight of the big picture. Right? You guys have seen a mosaic, right? You guys have seen... Uh, uh, Pictures, when you know, you understand what mosaic, a picture made up of many pictures. If you get too caught up into one, uh, uh, you can uh, define your whole walk or Christian faith in one aspect when actually it's much bigger. It's a person. The whole of scriptures is pointing to that of a person, not of a religion, and that's Jesus Christ. Um, so that's one thing to, to be aware of. Secondly, and I've taught this principle before. I don't know if I've taught it on a Sunday, but I've definitely taught it on an EMP, and um, uh, this idea of prescriptive versus descriptive. Prescriptive versus descriptive. So when you read the scriptures and you come upon a particular context, the danger is to take any passage in any context and say, well, that applies to me, and to take it as prescriptive versus descriptive. And so when you read a passage, uh, there are some difficult places where, where God uses Israel to wipe out whole nations and peoples, including women and children. And so you couldn't read that particular passage and say, well, as a believer, because this is scriptures, that applies to me. You couldn't, you couldn't read the Old Testament and say, well, look, Abraham or, or some of these patriarchs had uh, uh, multiple wives and uh, uh, concubines. Well, so if, if they did it, then it's okay for me. No, it, it, it's, it's uh, uh, descriptive. It's, it's, it's particular to their culture and their context. Uh, in the New Testament, it explicitly and clearly says, one man, one wife. Okay, and that was the design by God from the very origin of Adam and Eve. Right? But cultures and context and brokenness and sin. 
So, so what I'm saying is if you wanted to, if you wanted to, outside your church, outside your pastor, outside your spiritual leadership, because you're an independent, lone ranger Christian, if you wanted to, you could take whatever passage you wanted to of your own mind and right and say, well, this, this is how it applies to me. And I'm telling you that's wrong. Okay, you can't do that, right? Um, it's prescriptive versus descriptive. Certain things, it's simply a, a historical account or description and certain things are prescriptive. The Lord says, do this, one, two, three. The Lord says, do not do this, A, B, C. And so you have to be really careful. You have to be really humble when you approach the scriptures. Um, so there are certain things that the scriptures that God is just describing a certain context in which he's going to pull out grace or he's going to pull out purpose uh, uh, and the bigger picture. And there are certain things where God is very precise and uh, uh, prescribing uh, uh, a way of life. Does that make sense? Right? And so the trick is then how do you discern? How do you discern which is prescriptive? How do you discern which is descriptive? How, how do you discern, especially if it's something that you want God to do for you, right? When I want God something to do for me, I often look for proof in the scriptures to support my case. Does that make sense? And that's very dangerous. That's very dangerous. It's the same thing as a selective reading, right? We bypass the difficult things in scriptures or the, or, or the, or the uh, uh, requirements or the challenges of God. And we, and we just feed on the good stuff, the easy stuff, the sweet stuff, right? Well, you're going to have a one-dimensional, one-sided walk relationship with God. It's going to be a one-way street. Okay, so prescriptive versus descriptive. Uh, here's a really good quote uh, uh, from, a, from a commentator. You should read the literal parts of the Bible literally and the figurative parts uh, of the Bible figuratively. Recognizing the difference is the hard part, right? So, so there's one aspect, you know, literal, literal, figurative, figurative. Recognizing the difference is, would be the sign of maturity. Prescriptive versus descriptive. How do you know when God, God is just giving a context, not necessarily prescribing a, a, a way of life? Well, if you boil all that down, really it comes down to the simple fact that we were driving home even, even yesterday um, which is you need the Holy Spirit, right? I know of PhD scholars who teach in secular universities of scriptures, and they can probably quote and reference and context and historical context scriptures better than probably the majority of the pastors that I know of. But that doesn't mean they know God, right? You need the Holy Spirit. You have to have revelation. The scriptures has to come alive as you read it through the, through the Holy Spirit, so that you can have an encounter with a person, a person who loves you, a person who is God, creator of the universe, who intended and planned and purposed and put everything into motion so that one day through these scriptures, through all these multiple generations of witnesses and, and cultures and, and thousands of years, that you would come to this singular central message that God loves you so much that he came down in the form of Jesus Christ and that he wants to have a personal, intimate relationship with you. And that he wants to pour out his spirit upon you. So we have to have uh, uh, the Holy Spirit. Uh, um, think of Paul. As, for as much fervor and passion that he had as Saul before he got converted. Uh, until he encountered Jesus. Until he was, uh, encountered the Holy Spirit. He was simply uh, uh, on fire for a religion. You have to look for a person. Not for a teaching. Not for rules, not for laws. You have to look for a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. So when you look at this 
you know, passage in chapter 38, this horrendous, like, I don't want my kids uh, uh, to ever read this chapter until they're like maybe 30. Um, and then and then I would ask them, okay, where is Jesus in this? And, and I'd be uh, afraid that they, you know, would be uh, uh, impacted in, in harmful ways. Um, just just adulterous relationship, uh, uh, a father. What, what's this guy doing, you know, going out and, uh, um, you know, all these things anyways. Um, and so where is Jesus in this particular passage? Um, well, the, the, the eventually has two sons, Perez and Zerah. Well, I'll get back to that in a little bit, okay? Um, I, I know where he is, by the way. I'm not, I'm not trying to find him right now. Um, yeah, he's, he's right here. Uh, I'm trying to a little delayed effect to close out with it. Um, and then we're going to go on to chapter 39, which is a chapter that I, that I do want to teach on. Um, and so let's read there, chapter 39, and then we'll come back to chapter 38, and we'll close with there, okay? Uh, chapter 39, verse 1, you know, the ones that we teach in Sunday school. We bypass, like chapter 38 doesn't exist. Um, now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian, who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, uh, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered, and he lived in the house of, the Egy- of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in the eyes and became his attendant. Can you guys just read that for a second? Annie, can you pass me my water, please? Um, Yeah, just continue reading on your own, verse 4. And uh, we'll pick up in verse 5. From the time he put him in charge of his household and all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now Joseph was well-built and handsome, and after a while his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. But he refused with me in, uh, but he refused. With me in charge, he told her, My master does not concern himself with anything in this house. Everything he owns he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and, and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. One day he went into the house to attend the, his duties, and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, Come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. When she saw that, that he had left his cloak and in her hand had run out of the house, she called her household servant. Look, she said to them, This Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. Then she told him this story. The Hebrew slave you brought us came to, uh, brought, brought us, came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story, uh, his wife told him, saying, This is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under the Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Amen? Amen. Amen. <clears throat>
And so uh, Joseph had favor in his own household uh, to the point where his brothers became incredibly, increasingly jealous and wanted to kill him and then sold him. Joseph then found favor when he uh, was sold into slavery and, and uh, under the, care, or under the uh, 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 oversight of uh, Potiphar. Joseph fell into an even deeper pit, uh, was thrown into prison for something he didn't do, and even there he found favor. Um, and, I, and the question I had was, is there, is there favor in prison? <laughs> like, like, what does God's favor in prison look like? Uh, uh, you know, a few extra rations of food, uh, a little bit more time out in the yard. I, I don't know what prison looked like back then, you know, but a little bit more sunlight, a, a responsibility. Um, I'm beginning to think that there's a correlation, right? Because if, 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 if Joseph is having favor in prison in, in, in a state in which probably most of us would be very upset and would be complaining and angry at God, uh, and, and, and God is giving favor and he is receiving favor and he is in fact favored I'm beginning to think that there's a correlation between our attitude and, and, and the favor that we receive from God um, because I think that if I were in that situation that I would just be angry and depressed for a, a, a pretty long period of time having done everything right but yet at the same time being dejected and being demoted um, and yet Joseph's attitude seemingly is always trusting, is always believing, is always having faith, always saying something to the effect like, well, if God put me here, he must have put me here for a reason. I think every position, whether betrayed by his family and his brothers, whether in, uh, uh, betrayed by his uh, uh, boss's wife or a certain context in his work, whether put into prison for something he didn't do, I think that if Joseph can receive such favor in these contexts, that he must be thinking something like, well, if God put me in this circumstance, this particular season of my life, there must be a reason because I know God is good. And, and I'm unwavering in that belief. And so I'm gonna, there must be a reason. And so I'm going to serve these people as if I'm serving God himself. I'm going to serve these people, these individuals, this context, as if I'm serving God himself. And I think this type of attitude or this type of humility, we talked about humility yesterday, and this type of uh, uh, view or vantage point, no matter what circumstances you're in, both high or low, does your view of God change depending on your circumstances? When things are going really good for you, 8 out of 10 things, does God look incredible to you? But then when things are looking really bad, you know, only 1 out of 10 things or 9 out of 8 or 8 out of 10 things are really bad, does God's face change to you personally? Does, does His thoughts towards you appear or, or seem to be negative? Well, that, that's what would be called an environmental Christian. An environmental Christian is someone whose faith and following of God is, is highly dependent on their circumstances. For example, if you're in Singapore and you're part of house church and you're going to church every week, uh, uh, there, there's some safeguards, accountability, and, and, and we follow God in certain contexts. But then when we leave Singapore, when we're on vacation or when we're on work trips or when we're alone, then, then it's a totally different story. Our value systems become totally flipped and, 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 and the things that we value and our behaviors and things totally take on a different context. That's an environmental Christian. You're, you're, you're a Christian when there are other Christians around. Right? And, and so, 
For Joseph, that's not the case here. No matter how many people betray him, no matter how many people leave him, his vantage or viewpoint of God never changes. And so that is why I believe that God's favor was always with him. Because everything he did, he never did it for his dad. Everything he did, he never did it for his mom. He didn't do it for his, his, his uh, uh, siblings. He didn't do it for anyone. Everything he did, he did for God and unto, unto God himself. And so that's why I believe that regardless of your state or situation, regardless of your job, regardless of your role, that if you dedicate and do that unto God, God will see that you trust him and then God will favor you and God will bless you. Amen? I absolutely believe that. Whatever he did, he did unto the Lord. Um, there's a few points here. Uh, we, we may not finish, um, but, but I'll, I'll give a stab at it. Um, this is a very uh, a well-known popular uh, point here uh, of Potiphar's wife trying to entice and trying to commit adultery with Joseph. And just, just a really simple point here. Uh, he refused. He, he would deny. Uh, in verse 10, And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, Right? Imagine the devil right? just tempting you day after day. You know you shouldn't. You, you know you shouldn't. And you feel you shouldn't. And spiritually, you certainly. But day after day, just, just constantly just, just you know, pining and constantly just, it's just lingering there. Right? And, and, and sometimes you just wish those thoughts would go away. And just day after day, temptation. And then you feel like it's gone. And then you let your guards down. And boom, it hits you. Right? All of us have experience with temptation. And falling into sin. Um, and though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her. And then it says, or even be with her. And I think a lot of us uh, want to be like Joseph and, and not fall into the temptation of falling into sin by getting into bed with sin. Right? But I think a lot of us are, are uh, uh, maybe uh, ill-equipped in the sense that, you know, for us there's this line and we don't cross it. But actually there's even a higher line. And for Joseph, if you look at his character, not would he not only, of course, not breach and have sin and break, but he, he wouldn't even be with her. You guys, you guys see that? It's not this like black and white and like I won't cross this line. He wouldn't, in other words... He wouldn't even give the appearance or even the perception. Not, not that he's not doing it. Certainly he's not doing it. But he wouldn't even allow himself uh, uh, an opportunity for sin to take root. Does that make sense? So a lot of us, including myself, our issue is that, that, that we have this kind of self-inflated sense or, or confidence, or I'll just call it straight up pride, that I just, I'll do everything up to this point, but I won't cross that line. Right? My emotions can run rampant. My thoughts can run rampant. But I, but I promise you, God, I won't kill this person. <laughs> but in my mind, I've mutilated the person all day. I, mean, I haven't really. But, you know, it, it, the, the devil has, you know. But, and then I reject those thoughts, right? <laughs> right? Uh, um, but, but I think this is a, a really important principle. I'd like to charge and challenge you guys. Um, not about... Uh, uh, the do's and don'ts uh, uh, outwardly, um, but also to protect our hearts. I think what Joseph is doing here is protecting his heart. Certainly he knows he cannot. It would be a betrayal to God 
It'd be a betrayal to those that, that were entrusted, that, that has entrusted him. But not only that, but he, I think J- Joseph has a principle here that he's applied and living out that brings about favor, that it's not just about what you do on the outside, but it's about the principles and what you carry in your thought life and in your hearts. And so it's not enough to simply not sin, uh, but to, to rein in your emotions and your thoughts and your spirit. And so he would not even be with her, would not even give temptation. Maybe, he's, maybe he recognizes, yeah, I'm a man and I have desires and, and, and I've gone through a rough patch. And, and so knowing that, I don't want to put myself in a position. I don't even put myself even near the border of position where temptation might rear its head and then I might fall in a bad day. Um, he avoids even the appearance and perception. Of, of such things. Um, you know, we have some uh, ministry leaders, Ten Commandments that we sent out. We have a house church leaders, Ten Commandments that we sent out. And I have a, 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 a you know, SP staff. We have now uh, uh, potentially four full-time staff by, by next month. Um, Brian, you're on full-time staff starting today. Amen? Yeah, he started full-time on in, in Sunday. So let me take this time to remind you of the Ten Commandments of our staff, right? But, but everyone here, and these are kind of unspoken rules that we've been teaching over the, over the years. Certainly, I can tell you from 15 years ago from SP Hong Kong, but, and, and, okay, but, but okay, I got to couch this because this is where I know the enemy will come and attack. This is not a judgment or an indictment. Um, I, I'm not better than anyone here. I, I'm, I'm equally a sinner like everyone else. I, I, you know, uh, uh, if not for the grace of God, right? If not for the grace of God, I would not be here. This is not a, a, a division of holy and... Un- this is an invitation, what I like to call a purity pact. This is a... In- you can stay where you are and there's no judgment. God loves you and, and, and God works in our... Pro- but for our leaders, this is an invitation for you to step up. To, to lay more on the altar and to give God more room to bless you and for you to experience God. So this is a, I, you know, I, I don't want to call it a regulation or laws. I call it a purity pact. A purity pact. An opportunity, an invitation, if you want, to step up and to seek God more in this particular way or context. I don't know that all churches do this. I don't, I'm sure other churches have different you know, rules and whatnot. But for SP, this, is, this was my charge. I felt, and this might modify uh, down or it might modify up in, in years to come. But for this season and for this time, this is a pact that, I, that I'm making with, with uh, our, our leaders and everyone who's serving. And so, uh, uh, you know, a handful of, and I won't go into all of them. There's, there's Ten Commandments. And if you're interested, I can send it to you. But I'll go through a few of them. And a lot of it has to do with this principle of uh, even the appearance of such things. Right? So the scriptures talks about in the New Testament, do not uh, uh, commit adultery, do not sin, do not get drunk, uh, uh, do not, uh, you know, debauchery, do not, uh, uh, you know, th- th- list a whole lot of, very clear, explicit do nots. And then it goes on to say, do not even give the appearance as such things. Right? You guys are familiar with that passage? Right? It gives a very clear, don't do this, don't do that, don't get drunk, don't have sex outside of marriage, don't, you know, such and such, debauchery, sin, and all these things. And then it says, do not even give the appearance of such things. Right? Paul, Paul communicates that. And so, uh, uh, you know, as part of our Ten Commandments, uh, for leaders, we have don't get drunk, right? The, the scripture says specifically don't get drunk, right? Um, and then it goes on to says not even the appearance of drunk. So I, I've taught this and, and I've sat down with many leaders before. And uh, if I have half a, a can of beer, 
uh, which I do, and, and I do at home, and, I, and every once in a while I'll go out and do it, you know, casually, you know. Uh, but if I have half a can of beer, I, it, uh, my whole face turns red. And so the appearance is such that you wouldn't be able to tell whether or not I had uh, 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 half a can or whether I had a six-pack. And so if someone were to walk into a particular social context or if someone were to take a photo of me and post it on, they wouldn't know that, that I only had half a can of beer because, because of my allergic reaction and I get really uncomfortable. Um, and so that might be a discouragement. That might cause someone else who might actually have a problem with alcoholism, someone who is trying to lay it down and, and uh, uh, give it up and get right with God, and then he sees other uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, mature believers practicing their liberty. There's nothing wrong with drinking. There's, there's no judgment. You can drink, uh, uh, you can drink you know, comfortably. You know, just don't get drunk. But the law of love would, would push us, would charge us, to even protect against the appearance and perception of such things. Uh, and this is to safeguard and, and, and to protect those who may be struggling with it. Um, and so I, I would oftentimes uh, uh, share it in that way, in the way I just said it like that, and oftentimes the response would be like, just, just, like, it, you know, just like I'm looking at your faces now. You know, I heard that before. Okay, peace Sam, that's your interpretation. Maybe, uh, you know, we had, a, a, and I'll just use this one example today and then I'll close. We had uh, about three years ago, four years ago maybe, uh, a, a policy that we had implemented, uh, no alcohol in house church or no alcohol in SP functions. And, and that was met with some resistance and you know, different arguments came up and well, we wanna show the world that uh, we're just like them, that, we're, that, that we love God and that we're not that different from them and we want people to feel comfortable and we want people to come and, and, and come to house church and, 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 I, and I see that and I, and I understand that and, and, and it makes sense to me. Um, but as a shepherd and as a pastor, if, if you could for a moment try to put yourself in my shoes in, in which you have to take care of the whole community, 250 people, uh, uh, you know, certain uh, principles and policies, you know, there will always be uh, um, uh, um, potential for the enemy to cause, uh, uh, you know, groups or individuals to stumble, right? And, and, and then to violate directly what the scripture says, you know, which is to not, not get drunk. That used to be my angle. It used to be more like a, a, a punishment thing or you know, avoid such a bad thing. And yeah, there's nothing wrong with having a couple beers and enjoying it with a meal uh, so long as you don't get drunk. That's, that's, that's not a problem. And then it goes on to the perception aspect of, well, don't, just, don't cause a hindrance to other people. Even if it looks like you are, then you've caused someone to stumble. So there's a principle of love. Um, but there's really a, a, a higher principle. And, and check this out. And, and this is how I, I pitch it now. This is how I teach it now. And this is something I hope that would be you know, challenging and encouraging to you as well. Um, the scriptures, think about this for a second. In two, at least two that I can identify. There may be others. But at least two that I can identify um, talks about alcohol and the Holy Spirit in the same breath. In the scriptures, there are references where all, both alcohol and the Holy Spirit are mentioned in the same context. Right? One verse which you would know is, do not get drunk with wine, but instead be filled with the Holy Spirit. In that one sentence, the scriptures, God, through his divine knowledge and, 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 and through the scriptures says, don't get drunk on wine, but instead be filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay? I just want to make sure. Sometimes my word's not up, but yeah. Okay? Um, another context. I just, want to, I just want to show you something. When, when, when God's ultimate plan, the climax of his plan, 
to bring his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross and then to resurrect him so that all peoples could be filled with the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, right? A whole new chapter, a whole new beginning, new wineskins. The Holy Spirit is poured out and they're filled with the presence of God and they're filled with the love and the joy of God. People thought they were drunk. Think about that for a second. You have two contexts in which there seems to be some type of connection or correlation or at least in appearance wise between wine or the Holy Spirit. And and my simple take on this is when the world is empty and when there's nothing really to fill you up and you're not feeling particularly good about certain things, well, you kind of want to pick me up. Right, you you, you kind of want a, a, a something to you know make you feel. I, I don't know, you know, I, I'm not a I'm not a drinker, so uh, um, it's not the point. My, my dad is my dad was an angry drinker, so I have all sorts of uh, uh, um, context and things and whatnot that I that I have to work out myself. But 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 think about this for a second. There's something about alcohol that uplifts or makes us bubbly or makes us uh, 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 put our guards down. That makes us more real. That makes us uh, uh, more sociable, isn't there? Right? To a degree, isn't that to a large part? Why? 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 You know, and, and so you, so you want to get to this place or get to this degree of emotion. It, it's, it's surprising to me that, that alcohol has that same impact. And then the scripture says that when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, but now take this out. It's not physically, it's not through substance, but supernaturally, through the Holy Spirit, through God's presence, we're filled with his joy. We're filled with his love. We're, we're, we're bubbling up literally with, with God's presence and love. And so I think that there's a counterfeit and then there's a real thing. And I think that uh, uh, those that, were, that had relied on certain substances to, to bring them to this place couldn't tell the difference when the Holy Spirit was being poured out. And so this is, this is how, how I now, my angle on it is, it's not that alcohol is bad. That, that's not the angle that I go. That's not... It's that being filled with the Holy Spirit is so incredible. The scriptures tells us that the Spirit can be quenched, that it's, it's, it's uber sensitive, right? We might be worshiping and the presence of God comes and I come up and say something off the wall, boom, just like that, right? The Spirit gets quenched. You might be walking with God in obedience and, and filled with the presence and then you come in and sin and boom, just like that, right? You feel distant. And so the Holy Spirit is sensitive. Whether it's a Sunday service, whether it's a house church, whether it's an accountability group, whether it's a, it's a Bible study, whether it's a Christians getting together socially. Think about this for a moment. Just if, if I could shift the mindset a little bit. At any given moment where two or three of us come together in your office, in your leisure, at any given moment, when our hearts are orientated and before God, where two or three come together in your workplace, in your social place, in, in your nightlife, in your home, in your family, in your job, the presence of God can come and move and touch and impact and minister. At any given moment when two or three come together, the power of God can come in such a powerful and supernatural way that lives would be transformed. Amen. And so if we know how sensitive the Holy Spirit is, it's like this relationship, and, and, and even if physically, outwardly, we did everything right, but inwardly in our hearts or our minds or our thoughts, we were off. 
if we recognize how sensitive the Holy Spirit is, then why would we jeopardize? Why would we jeopardize any opportunity for the Holy Spirit to come? Because when the Holy Spirit comes, as you know, in worship, man, it's powerful. When the Holy Spirit comes in your in your house church, it's it's powerful. When the Holy Spirit comes in your home, it's powerful. Why would we jeopardize anything that might hinder or even take away from that? Does that make sense? Right? So it's, it's more of a positive push. Like, man, if we did it right and, and if we really humble ourselves and if we uh, put away distractions, man, the Holy Spirit can come and impact and, and, and just incredibly uh, pour out on, on the people, on the, on the church, in our communities, and lives will be changed. And so that's really my charge, is to not hinder or to not you know, be on the fine line or to not push to the limits, but simply to give everything and, uh, um, and really in our hearts to safeguard that. Uh, and so that's really, you know, I've been wanting to share this for a while. It has nothing to do with this is bad or this is negative or this means you're not. It's that when we intently together as one body seek after God in this way, I think that God will absolutely bless. Amen? The, the Holy Spirit is sensitive. Uh, um, you know, uh, my dad had a liquor store. You know what it was called in, in downtown Los Angeles? Actually, a movie uh, with Meg Ryan and, and, and uh, Nick Cage was filmed there. They rented my dad's liquor store and they paid him for like a whole week so they could film. Uh, I think it was uh, uh, City of Angels or something. You guys, I don't know, some of you guys may remember that. Man. You know what my dad's liquor store was called? House of Spirits. <laughs> yeah. Because when you drink, you get all sorts of spirits. Or, or the guards go down, the gates go down, and all sorts of spirits can come in. Does that make sense? So keep your gates up. <laughs> Right? And let one spirit, the living spirit, be the source of your undying, bubbling up from the well of your stomach in, into heaven, connection with God. It's that good. It's that great. When you get a taste of it, man, it's like nothing else you ever need. Amen? And uh, I would love to have a glass of wine or even a beer with you one-on-one in a non-social context, and don't post it on social media, um, just to show you that I mean what I say. Okay? Does that, does that, does that sound okay? We'll land there. Okay, let's, let's, uh, let's bow our heads and let's invite the worship team up.